Hello. Hello. Welcome to Infinite Cast Part 11. 11. 11. Wow, they go so fast. Yeah. I can't believe we've already been doing this for 11 weeks. Time flies when you're inside. Yeah, when you're inside, reading Infinite Jest. Uh, Where were we last time? We were halfway through the introduction of Kate. Kate Gompert. Kate Gompert. In this, like, ward. Who is trying to describe her depression. Yes. And getting a clinical response from the clinician. Doctor. Shall we? Yeah, let's dive right in. All right, so last... We, she said, uh, Kate wanted to uh, get electroconvulsive therapy. Yes, but she specifically I was wondering requested. if that was still a thing. Well, the doctor said slowly, nodding to indicate he had heard the feelings of the young woman. The young woman was expressing, "Well, I'm happy to discuss treatment options with you, Catherine, but I have to say, right now, I'm curious about what you started. It sounded like to me to maybe start to indicate what might have occurred." something two weeks ago to make you feel these feelings now. Would you be comfortable talking to me about it? Either ECT or you could just sedate me for a month. You could do that. All I need is, I think, a month at the outside, like a controlled coma. You could do that if you guys want to help. The doctor gazed at her with the patience she was meant to see. (laughs) And she gave him back a frightening smile, a smile empty of all affect, as if someone had contracted her circumorals with a thigmotactic electrode. The teeth of the smile evidenced a clinical depressive's classic inattention to oral hygiene. (laughs) She said, I was thinking I was about to say you'll think I'm crazy if I tell you, but then I remembered where I am. She made a small sound that was supposed to be laughter. It did sound jagged, dentate. I was going to say, I've thought sometimes before, like the feeling maybe had to do with hope. Hope? Her arms had been crossed over her breasts the whole time, and though the room was overheated, the patient rubbed each palm continually over her upper arms, behavior one associates with chill. The position and movement shielded her inner arms from view. The doctor's eyebrows had gone uh, syn- synclinal from puzzlement without his awareness. Bob. Bob. The doctor was anxious that his failure to have any idea what the girl was referring to would betray itself and accentuate her feelings of loneliness and psychic pain. Classic unipolars were usually tormented by the conviction that no one else could hear or understand them when they tried to communicate. Hence, jokes, sarcasm, the psychopathology of unconscious arm rubbing. Kate Gompert's head was rolling like a blind person's. Jesus, what am I doing here? Bob Hope, dope, synths, stick, grass, smoke... She made a quick Dubois gesture with thumb and finger held to rounded lips. The dealers down where I buy it, some of them make you call it Bob Hope when you call, in case anybody's accessed the line. You're supposed to ask, is Bob in town? And if they have some, they say, hope springs eternal, usually. (laughs) It's like a code. One kid makes you ask him to please commit a crime. The dealers that stay around any length of time tend to be on the paranoid side as if it would fool anybody who knew enough to bother to access the band on the call. She seemed decidedly more animated. And one particular guy with snakes in a tank and a trailer in Alston, he... So drugs, then, you're saying you feel may be a factor, the doctor interrupted. The depressed young woman's face emptied once more. She engaged briefly in something the staffers on specials called the thousand meter stare. <laughs> Not the dr- thousand island stare. <laughs> Not drugs, she said slowly. 
The doctor smelled shame in the room, sour and uremic. Her face had become distantly pained now. The girl said, stopping. The doctor felt comfortable, saying once again that he was not sure he understood what she was trying to share with him. She now went through a series of expressions that made it clinically impossible for the doctor to determine whether or not she was entirely sincere. She looked either pained or trying somehow to suppress hilarity. She said, I don't know if you'll believe me. I'm worried you'll think I'm crazy. I have this thing with pot, meaning marijuana. (laughs) The doctor was oddly sure that Kate Gompert pretended to sniff instead of (laughs) engaging in a real sniff. Marijuana. Most people think of marijuana as just some minor substance, I know. Just like this natural plant that happens to make you feel good the way poison oak makes you itch. And if you say you're in trouble with hope, people will just laugh. Because there's much worse drugs out there. Believe me, I know. I'm not laughing at you, Catherine, the doctor said, and meant it. But I love it so much. Sometimes it's like the center of my life. It does something to me, I know. That's not good. And I got told point blank not to smoke on the Parnate because Dr. Garten said no one knew what certain combinations do yet and it would be roulette. But after a while, I always think to myself, it's been a while and things will be different somehow this time if I do, even on the Parnate. So I do again. I start again. I start out just doing like a couple of hits off of Dubois after work to get me through dinner because dinner with my mother and me is, well, and but pretty soon after a while, I'm in my room with the fan pointed out the window all night, doing one-hitters and exhaling at the fan to kill the smell. Mm -hmm. And I make her say I'm not there if anybody calls, and I lie about what I'm doing in there all night, even if she doesn't ask. Sometimes she asks, and sometimes she doesn't. And then after a while, I'm smoking joints at work, at breaks, going in the bathroom and standing on the toilet and blowing it out the window. There's this tiny window up high with the glass frosted and all filthy and cobwebby, and I hate having my face up next to it. But if I clean it off, I'm afraid Mrs. Diggs or somebody will be able to tell somebody's been doing something up there around the window, standing there in high heels on the rim of the toilet, brushing my teeth all the time and using up calyrium by the bottleful. Calyrium takes us to endnote 30. I thought she didn't brush her teeth all the time. Well... Uh, it's not teeth. It's a neutral boric acid eyewash, a kind of turbocharged visine available over counter from Wyeth Labs with its own eye cup of apothecary blue plastic that's downright gorgeous when held up to a window's light. <laughs> See, that end note seems to be written in Kate's voice. Uh, perhaps, yeah. Or at least from her perspective. Um, using a calorium by the bottleful and switching the console to audio and always needing more water before I answer the console because my mouth's too dry to talk, especially on the Parnate. The Parnate makes my mouth dry anyways. And pretty soon I'm totally paranoid they know I'm stoned at work, sitting there in the office, high, reeking, and I'm the only one that can't tell I reek. I'm like so obsessed with, do they know? Can they tell? And then after a while, I'm having my mother call in sick for me so I can stay home after she goes into work and have the whole place to myself with nobody to worry about, do they know? And smoke out the fan and spray Lysol all over and stir Ginger's litter box around so the whole place reeks of ginger and smoke and draw and watch terrible daytime stuff on the TP because I don't want my mother to see any cartridge orders on days I'm supposed to be in bed sick. I start to get obsessed with does she know? I'm getting more and more miserable and fed up with myself for smoking so much 
this is after a couple weeks of it is all. And I start getting high and thinking about nothing except how I have to quit smoking all this bob so I can get back to work and start saying, I'm here when people call, so I can start living some kind of damn life instead of just sitting around in pajamas, pretending I'm sick like a third grader and smoking and watching TP again. And so after I've smoked the last of whatever I've got, I always say, no more, this is it. And I throw out my papers and my one-hitter. I've probably thrown out about 51 hitters and dumpsters, including some nice wood and brass ones, including a couple from Brazil. The land barge guys must go through our sector's dumpster once a day looking to get another good one hitter. And anyways, I quit. I do stop. I get sick of it. I don't like what it does to me. And I go back to work and work my fanny off to make up for the last couple of weeks and get a leg up on, like, building momentum for a whole new start, you know? The young woman's face and eyes were going through a number of ranges of effective configurations, with all of them seeming inexplicably at gut level, somehow blank and maybe not entirely sincere. And so she said, but then I quit. And after a couple of weeks, uh, after I've smoked a lot and finally stopped and quit and gone back to really living, after a couple of weeks, this feeling always starts creeping in, just creeping in a little at the edges at first like first thing in the morning when I get up or waiting for the tea to go home after work for supper. And I try to deny it, the feeling, ignore it, because I fear it more than anything. The feeling you're describing that starts creeping in. Kate Gompert finally took a real breath. And then, but no matter what I do, it gets worse and worse. It's there more and more. This filter drops down. And the feeling makes the fear of the feeling way worse. And after a couple weeks, it's there all the time, the feeling. And I'm totally inside it. I'm in it and everything has to pass through it to get in. And I don't want to smoke any Bob. And I don't want to work or go out or read or watch TP or go out or stay in or either do anything or not do anything. I don't want anything except for the feeling to go away. But it doesn't. Part of the feeling is like being willing is being like willing to do anything to make it go away. Understand that. Anything. Do you understand? It's not wanting to hurt myself, it's wanting to not hurt. The doctor hadn't even pretended to try to take notes on all of this. He couldn't keep himself from trying to determine whether the ambient blank insincerity the patient seemed to project during what appeared clinically to be a significant gamble and move toward trust and self-revealing was in fact projected by the patient or was somehow counter-transferred or projected onto the patient from the doctor's own psyche out of some sort of anxiety over the critical therapeutic possibilities her revelation of concern over drug use might represent. This time, the time this thinking required looked like sober and thoughtful consideration of what Kate Gompert said. (laughs) She was again gazing at her feet's interactions with the empty boating sneakers, her face moving between expressions associated with grief and suffering. None of the clinical literature the doctor had read for his psych rotation suggested any relation between unipolar episodes and withdrawal from cannabinoids. So this has happened in the past, prior to your other hospitalizations then, Catherine. Her face, foreshortened by its downward angle, was working in the spread, writhing configurations of weeping, but no tears emerged. I just want you to shock me. Just get me out of this. I'll do anything you want. Have you explored this possible connection between your cannabis use and your depressions with your regular therapist, Catherine? 
she did not respond directly as such. Her associations began to loosen, in the doctor's opinion, as her face continued to work dryly. I had shock before, and it got me out of this. Straps, nurses with their sneakers and little green bags, anti-saliva injections, rubber thing for your tongue, general, just some headaches. I didn't mind it at all. I know everybody thinks it's horrible. That old cartridge, nickels and the big Indian, distortion. They give you a general here, right? They put you under. It's not that bad. I'll go willingly. The doctor was summarizing her choice of treatment option, as was her right, on her chart. He had extremely good penmanship for a doctor. He put her, get me out of this, in quotation marks. He was adding his own post-assessment question. Then what? When Kate Gompert began weeping for real. Wow. Sounds like uh, Kate and and Ken Erdele should go to the same program. Sounds like they should. (laughs) Let's move on. Uh, Just a single paragraph separate from the other two. It's between. And just before 0145 hours on the 2nd of April, YDAU, his wife arrived back home and uncovered her hair and came in and saw the Near Eastern medical attache and his face and tray and eyes and the soiled condition of his special recliner and rushed to his side, crying his name aloud, touching his head, trying to get a response, failing to get any response to her. He's still staring straight ahead. And eventually, and naturally, she, noting that the expression on his rictus of a face nevertheless appeared very positive, ecstatic even, you could say. A joyful rictus? Joyful rictus. She eventually, and naturally, turning her head and following his line of sight to the cartridge viewer. Oh no, now she's trapped in the infinite jest. Don't watch the jest. Don't, Don't watch look the at jest. It. Don't look at it. Don't look at the jest. Uh, but you can't Avoid look away. the jest. It's like Spider-Man Elsa. <laughs> uh, let's keep going. I think we can do a, a little bit of our next section. Yeah, we got about like eight, eight minutes left for our, our reading slot. Well, let's meet Gerhard Stitt. Hell yeah. Gerhard Stitt had, I have to decide whether I'm going to use a German accent for him, head coach and athletic director at the Enfield Tennis Academy, Enfield, Massachusetts, was wooed fiercely by ETA headmaster Dr. James Incondenza, just about begged to come on board the moment the academy's hilltop was shaved flat and the place was up and running. Incondenza had decided he was going to bring Stitt on board or bust. This, even though Stitt had just then lately been asked to resign from the staff of a Nick Bolletieri camp in Sarasota because of a really unfortunate incident involving a riding crop. <laughs> By now, though, pretty much everybody now at ETA feels as though stories about Stitt's whole corporal punitive thing must have been pumped up out of all sane proportion. Because yes, even though Stitt, dills, Stitt still does favor those high and shiny black boots, and yes, the epaulets still, and now a weatherman's telescoping pointer that's a clear stand-in for the now forbidden old riding crop, <laughs> he has Stitt at near what must be 70 mellowed to the sort of elder statesman point where he's become mostly a dispenser of abstractions rather than discipline, a philosopher instead of a king. His felt presence here is mostly verbal. The weatherman's pointer has not made corrective contact with even one athletic bottom in (laughs) Stitt's whole nine years at ETA. Still, although he now has all these Lebensgefährtens, (laughs) which takes us to a note 
number 31. Lebensgefährten's, uh, which is Stitt's term for Mr. Adelint, which means technically soulmate or spouse, but isn't meant at all sexually with slash regarding slash to Delint. We can rest assured. Okay. Uh, Lebens, Lebensgefährten's and proractors to administer most of the necessary little character building cruelties. Stitt does like his occasional bit of fun still. So, but when Stitt dons the leather helmet and goggles and revs up the old FRG-era BMW cycle and trails the sweating ETA squads up the Com Ave hills into East Newton on their PM conditioning runs, making judicious use of his pea shooter to discourage straggling sluggards, it's usually 18-year-old Mario in Condensa who gets to ride along in the sidecar. Hell yeah. Carefully braced and strapped, the wind blowing his thin hair straight back off his oversized head, beaming and waving his claw at people he knows. It's possibly odd that the leptosomatic Mario eye, so damaged he can't even grip a stick, much less flail at a moving ball with one, is the one kid at ETA whose company Stitt seeks out, is in fact pretty much the one person with whom Stitt speaks candidly, lets his pedagogical hair down. He's not close to his pro-rectors, particularly, shtit. Have we specifically established that Mario has a mangled hand before? No. Okay. We've, but that's ha- what we're we've had hints here, that right? he's shaped weirdly, uh, uh, unconventionally for a boy, but we'll hear more. Okay, great. But yes, he has a claw. Uh, he's not close to his pro-rectors, particularly, shtit, and treats Aubrey DeLint and Mary Esther Thode with a formality <laughs> <laughs> that's almost parodic. But often of a warm evening, sometimes Mario and Coach Stitt will find themselves out alone under the East Court's canvas pavilion or the towering Copper Beach west of Comad or at one of the initial scarred redwood picnic tables off the path out behind the headmaster's house where Mario's mother and uncle lived. Stitt savoring a postprandial pipe, Mario enjoying the smells of the cut. Caliopsis alongside the Grounds' Quincunx Paths. I don't know what Quincunx is. We'll have to look <laughs> it up. The Swedish Pines and the Briar's Yeasty Musk coming up from behind, from coming up from the hillside slopes. And he actually likes the sulfury odor of Stitt's obscure Austrian blend. Stitt talks. Mario listens, generally. Mario is basically a born listener. One of the positives to being visibly damaged is that people can sometimes forget you're there, even when they're interfacing with you. You almost get to eavesdrop. It's almost like they're like, if nobody's really in there, there's nothing to be shy about. That's why bullshit often tends to drop away around damaged listeners, deep beliefs revealed, diary-type private reveries indulged out loud, and listening the beaming and Brady kinetic boy gets to forge an interpersonal connection he knows only he can truly feel here. Stitt has the sort of creepy wiriness of old men who still exercise vigorously. <laughs> he has surprised blue eyes and a vivid white crew cut of the sort that looks virile and good on men who have lost a lot of hair anyway. And skin so clean sheet white it almost glows. An evident immunity to the sun's UV. In pine-shaded twilight, he is almost glowingly white, as if cut from the stuff of moons. He has a way of focusing his whole self's concentration very narrowly, adjusting his legs' spread for the very varicos- varicosities? <laughs> okay. And curling one arm over the other, 
and sort of drawing himself in around the pipe he attends to. Mario can sit motionless for really long periods. When Stitt exhales pipe smoke in different geometric shapes, they both seem to study intently. When Stitt exhales, he makes little sounds variant in plosivity between P and V. I'm realizing whole myth of efficiency <laughs> and no waste that is making this continent of countries we are in, he exhales. You know myths? Is that like a story? Ah, a made-up story for some children. And if, am I doing Russian? Uh, I don't know. I think you're, you're An efficiency you're of Euclid only. Flat. For flat children. Straight ahead. Plow ahead. Go. This is myth. There aren't any flat children, really. This myth of the competition and bestness we fight for you players here. This myth. They assume here always the efficient way is to plow in straight. Go. The story that the shortest way between two places is the straight line. Yes? Yes? <laughs> <laughs> Stitt can use the stem of the pipe to point for emphasis. But what then when something is in the way when you go between places? No? Plow ahead. Go. Collide. Kabong. <laughs> Willikers. Where is their straight shortest then yet? Where is the efficiently quickly straight of Euclid then? Yes. And how many, how many two places are there without there is something in the way between them if you go? It can be entertaining to watch the evening pines' mosquitoes light and feed deeply on luminous shit, who is oblivious. <laughs> the smoke doesn't keep them away. If an I am boyish, training to compete for best, our training facilities on a sign very largely painted stated, we are what we walk between. <laughs> Gosh. It's a tradition, one stemming maybe from Wimbledon's all-England locker room's timpana, that every big-time tennis academy has its own special traditional motto on the wall in the locker rooms, some special uh, aphoristic nugget that's supposed to describe and inform what the academy's philosophy is all about. After Mario's father, Dr. Incondenza, passed away, the new headmaster, Dr. Charles Tavis, a Canadian citizen, either... <laughs> Either Mrs. Incondenza's half-brother or adoptive brother, wow, they just went out and <laughs> tweeted it, depending on the version, CT had taken down Incondenza's founding motto, and I'm sorry, I'm about to butcher the Latin, te oxidere possunt sed te adere non possunt nefas est, which takes us to an endnote, which I hope is a translation. Uh, endnote 32. Roughly, they can kill you, but the legalities of eating you are quite a bit dicier. <laughs> uh, so CT had taken that down and had replaced with it the rather more upbeat, the man who knows his limitations has none. Mm. We can maybe, do we want to fall, end here? Yeah, let's end, let's end on that one. Great. Yes. Yeah, that's about 22 minutes. Oh, wait, really? Yeah. We can go a little more. No, let's let, okay. let's go because we're gonna do two today. Yeah. Uh, my my first thing is that I realized what uh, Dave Foster Wallace's names remind me of, which they are Monty Python flying circus names, where Ooh. everybody's named like uh like Thode, like, Mary Esther Thode, or 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 like uh, Edna P. Premis. Okay. Or or Mister Praline. Uh huh. Stuff I like see. that. Yes, I think that's right. Um, there are a bunch of other good 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 names. In that, um, I I'm very interested in the the development of 
moving forward, what's going on with the attache? Of course, that's the thing that I'm most interested in. Got to know more about this. We've got a cartridge watcher number two. Yeah. I have to assume that Kate and Ken are on some collision course towards towards each other, seeing as they share the seemingly same same compulsion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Manifested in almost exactly the same way. Yeah. Am am I wrong? (laughs) Yeah. I am wrong? No. Oh, no, no. Sorry. You're not wrong. Okay, great. Uh, This is, I mean, it's... I don't think it's a spoiler to suggest that a lot of this book takes place in a uh, post-rehab halfway house. Okay, great. So so a lot of people are headed towards A lot of people are headed there, including maybe our friend, the gigantic burglar who, ah, uh, yes, Gately, yes. who, if you recall, oh, first I thought you were say the, the problem. gigantic toddlers. Not the gigantic toddlers. Uh, is this, is Schnitt the first? Schnitt. Schnitt. Is Schnitt the first, uh, I want to say counselor, but instructor. Yes, that we've the first we've instructor. Met. Almost that everybody else described has been a student or an the, administrator, which would be James in Condensa, CT. Who this? I think I had hinted at this before, but uh, or had said it before, but this is the first time it is named in the text. That depending on the story, CT is either Avril and Condensa's half brother or adopted brother, and they are now together. Yeah, okay, so. Yeah, and the fa- and all the Enfield administrators have mostly been described up to this point as um, in the context of being members of the Incandenza family mm-hmm. rather than their relationship to, I'm going to forget all these names and you have to get you to sure. su- uh, supply them, but, you know, the the one who's like the minor drug dealer. The Pemulus. Student, Pemulus, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like all those people, the the, the administrators are more described as Incandenza family members. Yeah, or close, very close to them. So we're uh, so we're widening out the the lens a little bit and getting this first person who is an instructor, an elderly German man. Yes, Austrian, I think. Austrian, yeah. Okay. Which I was trying to adjust because I I was yeah, you I have to do like was friends with an Austrian uh, girl in high school and college who's amazing, but Austrians I find have a more lilting accent yeah. than uh, German. It's German, not as not as steely. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up in this episode uh, has to do with our last episode, which opened with the, or included that scene of the other Incandenza brother uh, begrudgingly uh, uh, entering a football game in a cardinal-shaped hang glider apparatus as part of a apparent thing of the new NFL or whatever version of the NFL they're playing in uh, where, where teams have to enter games dressed up as the embodiment of whatever their team name is. Correct. Whether it's a Bronco or presumably a Buccaneer they enter as the yeah. uh, Pirates or whatever. And like the day after we read that, people were passing around this clip on Twitter that was one of the members of the football team is the Ravens, uh, the Baltimore Ravens, like uh, digitally made up to be for like an NFL promotional still to be uh, like uh, transformed into a literal Raven. Yes. Like given raven wings. Which looks, the photo looks exactly like how I imagined. Imagined, yeah. That the, uh, that Oren and co. Yes. would be dressed. Dressed as, if they were playing for the Ravens rather than the Cardinals. If sure. they had given them Cardinal wings yeah. instead. Yeah. Uh, which is all just to say that DFW stays, uh, stays right. Stays correct. Stays correct. Although I'm interested in exploring a little more. I think his weak spot, his continual weak spot in this, I think is going to be what is now like what a modern day interpretation of like disability justice is because 
no, not a huge spoiler. Mario is a, the disabled brother, mm-hmm. and we'll find out why and how. Okay, and I feel like he treats him as opposed to the people with mental problems in this or like addictions who I think he treats with a certain level of sensitivity he does seem to kind of start treating Mario as like a freak and I feel like that's like maybe has not aged well yeah I mean it's, I guess I don't really have much info about him right now I kind of I mean is he a lobster boy kind of I'm like I can't draw him <laughs> like, <laughs> I'd have to may, maybe claw. I could draw him maybe I mean is it banner. too much of a spoiler to ask whether he he is a is it a genetic deficiency or a mutilated genetic okay uh, it, it's it'll be just something to keep an eye on because I actually okay. think it might be th- maybe the weakest of his of David Foster Wallace's like um, empathies maybe empathies yeah he's he's definitely empathetic but he's also treated like um like a, 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 a not well anomaly. I guess I would be interested to track whether whether it comes from the authorial uh view of him or whether he's trying to write from the voice of like a very ep- uh, uh, performatively athletic family. Or like right. a judge, or a judge, peer. A, yeah, mm-hmm. a uh, a disabled brother in the context of what would be a a very phys- what appears to be a phys- very physically oriented family of people in the right, which would right, have right, those right. kinds of expectations, right? Other othering him on purpose, yeah. perhaps. We'll see. There's I, plenty more. I do love. I mean, I'm sure that this is the name of the game, or this is the the whole game for this book. But like how how information like that is doled out over time without really being showy and you really have to pay attention to the, the slow buildup of details over mm-hmm. time rather than be being like, and here is Mario Incandenza. Mario, age uh, 18, is a, a boy of many disabilities sitting in the, you know, yeah. like kind of spooling out uh, every, everything uh, all at once when you introduce something, but rather, you know, building up information mm-hmm. over time. Mm-hmm. Which is also just by the way that we're doing this and the way that I'm consuming it, why I'm probably going to have to continually ask you for, I will, wait, is this the guy who did this thing at this time? Yeah, I will continually answer <laughs> to the best of my Great. ability. Well, I hope it's good for listeners as well to uh, have somebody who is who is also <laughs> consuming this the way you might be doing, which is in 20-minute segments weekly. Right. Uh, so I will hopefully be answering asking all the right questions as to... Uh, to, to keep the information flowing. Sure. And if you're listening to this and uh, my use of accents is annoying, just let me know. I like to do it to try to differentiate when two people are talking and one person has a different accent and I think that I can do it. Yeah. But that might not always be true. I'm going to have I'm, to work on my French, my Quebecois in a bit. Yeah, you watch some YouTube videos. Which is pretty weak, Watch yeah. some like uh, French Quebecois, like public access. And also it's, yeah, anyway, we'll get, we'll get to oh, that. Oh, <laughs> I am from Canada. <laughs> Je suis a Canada. <laughs> Terribly <laughs> horrible. Anyway, that's that's all I got. Is that that one? You have any uh, final thoughts about this segment? Mm. It's kind of a disjointed one because we started halfway through yeah. one and ended halfway through another one. Yeah, but that's fine. Such is the name of the beast. Uh, on to our second one for today. Yeah, the one you'll hear in a week. Yeah. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye.